Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as at interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I am joined by techmeister Marshall Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, who will do their best to keep me in check, and by our artist of the show. Today we talk to Bob Kapitoff, a professor of the kinetic image at Virginia Commonwealth University and an artist who has been a glassblower, video artist, and now maker of light sculptures. Kill All Normies, online culture wars from 4chan and Tumblr to Trump and the alt-right. Sometimes you read things that are life-affirming or politically validating, and sometimes you read things that remind you that you are out of touch and blind to so much of what is going on all around you. I just read a book of the latter kind, Angela Nagel's Kill All Normies, online culture wars from 4chan and Tumblr to Trump and the alt-right. Now I know I am out of touch, but I did learn a lot. Nagel reports on the actual functioning of websites like 4chan, Reddit, and Tumblr, edgier websites from both sides of the political spectrum. I had heard from students I'd taught about Anonymous and knew vaguely of the level of harassment out there, but I had no idea of the scope of some of the harassment and cruelty. Owie! Back in the 2016 election when Hillary Clinton made her famous cracks about Trump's basket of deplorables, I figured she was just talking about hillbillies and crabby white people. Well, apparently, she was also condemning the burgeoning right-wing online movement. According to Nagel, They erupted in memes, mockery, and celebration. This online backlash was able to mobilize a strange vanguard of teenage gamers, pseudonymous swastika-posting anime lovers, ironic South Park conservatives, anti-feminist pranksters, nerdish harassers, and meme-making trolls. Nagel goes on to say, The year 2016 may be remembered as the year the media mainstream's hold over formal politics died. The new online alt-right, the followers of Trump, are not yesterday's conservatives. According to Nagel, Trump, rightist 4chan, and the alt-right represent a pretty dramatic departure from the kind of church-going, upstanding, button-down family values conservatism of the past. Libertarian, anarchic, and liberated from moral constraints by internet anonymity. The contemporary troller is apparently likely to be a young male with an attitude problem, and he is almost guaranteed to hate women. In fact, he's likely to be brutally anti-feminist and absurdly misogynist. For the contemporary techno-geek libertarian, the world is divided into, quote, basic bitches, every woman, whores or sluts, take your pick, and lesbians, unquote. At least that's how the average, say, 23-year-old MGTOW might be expressed it. What's an MGTOW? Man going their own way. And if you were hearing or reading this, you were likely a normie, regular person, also known as a Chad or Stacy, typical male or female. If you are an old-fashioned conservative and are blind to the coolness of the alt-right, you are likely a cuckservative, a softly old-fashioned member of the Christian right, who has allowed our women, folk, nation, or race to be sold to the non-white foreign invader. This is some of the vocabulary of the alt-right. To the alt-right, the supposedly soft left of Tumblr is filled with PC weirdos who represent Generation Snowflake, a bunch of academic pencil necks who are too busy checking their privilege to muster the daily hard-ons necessary to adjust to the new tech libertarian lifestyle. Tumblr has become one of the most important platforms. For the emergence of a whole political and aesthetic sensibility fostering intersectionality, a recognition of the multiple varieties of intersecting marginalizations and oppressions. Ultimately, the alt-right finds these people amusing and recognizes that the greatest suffering of others always counts for less than my pleasure. This anonymous nihilism leads to a logical culmination of throwing off conscience and consciousness. The grim flowering of the id's voodoo energies. Yikes! You may be asking what makes these people so damn crabby. Well, according to Nagel, alt-right discourse talks a lot about alpha and beta males, worships the nihilism of the film's American Psycho and Fight Club, and is full of men who feel disadvantaged by the prevailing hookup culture. It would seem... Sexual patterns that have emerged as a result of the decline of monogamy have seen a greater level of sexual choice for an elite of men and a growing celibacy among a large male population at the bottom of the pecking order. The breakdown of monogamy results in promiscuity for the few, loneliness for the majority. 
So a lot of guys who spend their life online are crabby, sexually frustrated, and are just looking for a woman to blame. Sounds like an explosive recipe for the future. Will relationships become an endangered species as geeks go their own way and hate women from a distance, yet increasingly be able to hang out with virtual babes or robotic femdroids like in Blade Runner? I worry about the future of domestic bliss. What will become of the cuddle, the hug, and especially the holding of hands? So as a normie Chad-type baby boomer, I'm yesterday's news. I have a low intersectionality quotient as I'm an old white guy who grew up a Lutheran, is now a sloppy agnostic, likes baseball, loves to eat, and doesn't have much to bitch about. The world belongs to the crabby, frustrated, misogynistic alt-right, at least in whole sections of the internet. They've now got one of their own in the White House. Who knew being a meanie would become so cool? And now an interview with Bob Kapitoff, an old friend of Doug's, as well as a professor of the moving image at Virginia Commonwealth and a glassblower, video, and light artist. Hi, I'm here with Bob Kapitoff and um, uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Bob is an artist, a longtime friend, and um, he and has been an artist since pretty much since I've known him. Bob and I met in seventh grade back in Concord, California. We were in the same PE class in the middle school, in junior high school. And um, early on, it was evident to me that Bob loved the arts. Bob loved movies. He liked to be in art classes and so forth. And I'm just curious, when did you start knowing that you liked uh, being creative? When I was really young, I had this chalkboard and I drew on the chalkboard all the time. And I had this favorite character called Little Joe. And Little Joe um, flew around the world in a uh, biplane. <laughs> and uh, I just drew, I think that's when I had, knew I had some inkling that I might um, be into all this drawing and sculpture and that sort of thing. You were interested in movies from an early age, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that started as a consumer, you know, of just watching films, you know, pretty religiously. I was really into um, serial, you know, the old 40s serial, like, you know, a Rocket Man or there was one, what was it? It was one of my favorites. Was it Commander so, Cody? There was Commander Cody I loved and there was all kinds of goofy stuff. I loved that stuff. I just really loved that stuff. And I actually think it also had some kind of influence in terms of me being interested in art because I was always interested in the, the models and the and the, the sort of uh, toy sets that they would build. Like they would always have some cool set of like a flying saucer or some kind of airplane that hid inside a volcano or something. There was always some sort of hidden. I think I was always into the uh, secret hideout or secret, um, you know, uh, airstrip or something, you know. And uh, so... Um, that was kind of cultivated through a lot of that early film. And uh, and then, you know, you go through your, you know, uh, I didn't know this till later, but, you know, like the first time you see the original Godzilla and, you know, all the, the all the sets that, all, when, the original Godzilla, I think, was a guy in a rubber suit, part of it. And, uh, and they built these incredible models of Tokyo and then they destroyed them. And I think also one thing that always influenced me, I always, I always was real into scout books because I was into the illustrations. Like they always had these beautiful illustrations of like black and white illustrations, pen and ink of like how to build a campfire, how to tie a knot, how to make a tent, how to pack a pack. They were incredible drawings. And I, I was in the Boy Scouts, but I was more into the drawings that were in the scout manuals. And also another funny influence visually was my father also taught business math. So he had to do like long mathematical equations. And I've never been good at math, but I've always liked the look of math. I like the way square roots, it's like topography or like letter form. They're just, there's something about numbers and that gibberish and the writing and the script um, that's I've always found beautiful. And I know that influenced me. You had a great high school teacher, DeWitt Johnson, and um, you and a group of people started making films with him. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about DeWitt's influence. Well, DeWitt was, was one of many um, instructors that had a, a positive influence on me in terms of the arts. Um, he was a humanities teacher in high school, and I think he made humanities kind of 
interesting and accessible to a lot of people in high school. And um, and it was across the board because like it was a fun class to be part of because it was more of a mixed group. And then you had this guy who was showing movies, reading stories, showing us slides of like paintings of art and talking about it in a way that we had never experienced before and making it fun, you know, like he would always have a little story when he, like he would show like a, you know, a picture of, you know, some painting like Hieronymus Bosch and these, you know, like the Garden of Earthly Delights, all these beautiful things going on, then all these horrible things going on. And then, um, you know, he put, he said, yeah, I wonder what it's like when I put the slide away and do all the characters in the paintings kind of go, okay, we're off till the next time he shows our slide. And it was just sort of funny. He made it fun and he made it accessible. And I became friends with him and uh, we ended up um, making a, a Super 8 movie. I think it was called Hell at Apache Wells with a number of friends of ours. And it was really, and it was fun. It was fun to make a movie. I can almost remember the exact day when I got turned on to glass blowing and maybe art making on a more like that this could be a thing for me. I was sitting at home watching TV and the show came on and it was a TV show that was based upon a show, a traveling art show called With These Hands about American, cra modern at the time American craftsmen, craftspeople. And I, and it had ceramicists, and I know it had ceramicists like the ceramicist Clayton Bailey. It had um, um, a glass blower, and it had some other people, I think a woodworker. And I remember um, I was watching the glass blower, and and uh, he, and also watching the ceramicist guy because he was Clayton Bailey was at what they call a hand builder, made these wonderful, crazy monsters and latex sculptures, and. Um, and I just looked at it, and when I, there was something about it. I just pointed at the screen, and I knew that whatever that's, whatever they're doing, I want to do that. And I, I just knew that kind of instinctively. And I was very young, or you know, like maybe fourteen, fifteen. It's kind of like a light bulb went on, or something. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I became interested in glass blowing, and um, at the time, it was I. My interest in glass blowing corresponded sort of exactly with the rebirth of glass blowing in the United States by American craftspeople. Formally, up to that point, there was glass blowing in the United States. It was in actually places like West Virginia and Southern Ohio. There were companies that actually blew glass. They made glass, and that was sort of the center of American glass industry. They were actually blowing glass. In Europe, there's a long tradition of glass blowing. There was like the Scandinavian countries that are known for a certain style, and the Italians are known for a particular style. And so that's what sort of a, and, and so what happened was, is it turns out at the high school where my father was teaching, Pleasant Hill High School, the art teacher there, Clay Jordan was his name, I can remember his name, Clay um, built a glass facility at the high school and taught glass blowing. And I somehow, I think I took a night class from him and just did it for one day. And I was, or, you know, and I took it, you know, like a short course, like a six week course. And I just became enamored with it. That was my first glass blowing experience. And there was correspondingly at the time this, I, I don't know how I found out about, probably through Clay, that there was this school starting in Washington State um, called Pilchuck Workshops. And it was going to be run by, and it was sort of the brainchild of a glass blower from the Tacoma area named Dale Chihuly, who went on to be a very famous glass blower, taught at the Rhode Island School of Design. From there, he uh, started a glass school in um, Tacoma, Washington. He's worked all over the world. He's one of the most internationally renowned glass artists in the world now. And anyway, so I took a class from him. And at the time, it was this actually really wonderful experience because it was on this tree farm about 50, uh, in, in, out in Stanwood, Washington, which is about 50 miles north of Seattle off Highway 5. And uh, in the, it was, it, the land was donated by the Hoburg family. And the Hoburg family is a very, very, very wealthy, like industrial family. And um, so they donated like 50 acres for Pilchuck workshops and because they knew Dale as a the Northwest artist, you know, and all that. And I was very lucky because I went to the second class and so 
It was very cool experience. It was like a hippie summer camp in many ways. We would like... Were you there for like two months? We were about two months, about, yeah, during the summer, about 12 weeks, 14 weeks. Mm. And it was like, it was really unusual because we had 14 weeks and we could, um, we had to build our own houses. There was no dorms and we would go to the uh, dump and we would scrounge all the lumber. We would even scrounge food from behind the Safeways because people would throw away stuff. We got really good at scrounging. It was classic and and it seemed like everybody was broke. We so and we built, we built, we basically built a school, and it was very unique. I, I look back at it now as one of the most unique um, and accidental learning experiences of my life. And it was all sort of like people just trying stuff in the woods, and and uh, it was it was also nice because it was people from all over the country. So there were all these people from Rhode Island, there were all these people from the Midwest, there were all these people from the, some people from the South even. Then there were people from um, you know then the West Coast, and so it was a nice marriage of individual people and uh, they accepted me I went I had a great time and I learned a lot I got turned on to I met a glass blower named Jamie Carpenter who had just come back from Italy from a factory it, from studying in Murano, which is a very famous island off the coast of Venice, where the sort of heart of Italian glass is, is done. The, the, some of the most famous glass factories in Italy are on the island of Murano. And um, he studied at a particular one. And, and, and the Italian glass artists had a whole different way of blowing glass that... Um, than the sort of other people did. There's two techniques at the time. There was, when you blew glass, you would either shape the bubble with a wooden block, usually out of like apple wood or some kind of like fruit wood, and you soak it in water and you have a series of blocks to make a small bubble, a large, a medium bubble. And from the bubble, you make a cylinder. From the cylinder, you make any number of shapes. That's like the Northern Europe way of working. That's the way most people learned. And Jamie came back with a very unique way, which is the Italians hardly ever used blocks. They would just blow a bubble and they used a metal plate called a marver. And you would, you learned how to roll the glass or the bubble on the marver and be the, being able to like control the temperature of the bubble and blowing at the right time, you could make all these different and unusual shapes that like nobody else could make. And um, for whatever reason, there was something about that technique. I just took to it like a, a duck to water. Jamie was amazing artist. He's now, he went on to be a very, he's, has, he's actually a very well-known artist. Um, I think he even won a Guggenheim recently. He has a design firm in New York City. He's kind of a big deal. He's a big deal. But he went on to be a designer. Super, super intellectual guy. Um, and probably the first, like, uh, person, one of the only artists I ever sort of looked up to as like a, a it was, he was both a mentor, but also like, I guess you'd say, oh, I got to add a man crush on him now. But it's sort of <laughs> like, he was... Um, but what was interesting about that, so I learned this technique and I became pretty good at it. And glass blowing is one of those things that is a wonderful thing to do because it's like dance, it's like performance, it's like, it's a, it's a skill, but it is definitely a skill to blow glass. And you only kind of learn it by just doing it a lot. You, it, it, there's no, it's not a mystery. You want to have good teachers, but you have to practice. And I just blew as much as I could, all I could. You almost have to be obsessive about it. But two years of that and you you start to become competent. And so um, I love blowing glass and it was uh, a way of, um, and it was funny because I love blowing glass and then after I, but there came a point where I had to stop blowing glass because I felt as an artist, I sort of realized I wasn't going any further. I had learned a good craft. I was good at it. I couldn't do exactly what I wanted to with it. And so I then, it was real funny, I, I just stopped. I, I loved glass blowing and I got a lot out of it. And I learned a lot about discipline and craft and things that were necessary for me at the time as being a younger artist. And then I went in, but I, I sort of felt like the media for me, medium for me was a little limiting. And so I went, cause I was sort of interested in narrative. So I started getting more into ceramics. And I, at the time in the West coast, there was this funk movement in ceramics. There were these wonderful ceramic artists like 
Gahuli, who did these like crazy frog things, Richard Shaw, who did these beautiful sort of narrative kind of sculptures. He did a wonderful show with an artist named um, uh, Robert Hudson, who was a sculptor, and I wanted to study with him. Um, and then uh, UC Berkeley. And UC Berkeley, for some reason, was my first choice. And, um, and lo and behold, after... Um, doing my time at UW, I dropped out of school and then I, I did my two quarters, but I was sort of running out of money. So I went back to California and I had applied to graduate school. And while I was, I was sort of staying in Chico, just kind of hanging out. <laughs> and then lo and behold, I got into Berkeley and I got into both places, but Berkeley was my first choice. So I accepted Berkeley and got accepted in the sculpture there. And the great thing about Berkeley and their sculpture department and I really loved this, was the art school was painting and sculpture. That was it. But long story short, I had a successful time at Berkeley. And then what kind of art were you doing by the time you were heading out? Weren't you doing electronic talking heads and stuff? Was um, I, was, um, I was doing video, and I, was, I had kind of uh, conceived of these robots that talked. And... Um, I didn't build the electronics, I got other people to build the electronics, but I sort of came up with the idea and basically I, I built a, a, a talking head based upon an electromagnet so as I would record my voice, hey, I'm going to the store. And then when I would put that on a tape and then play the tape into these electronics, it would go through this electronic system, I think it's called a Vox, and then it would... Um, convert the your energy you know speaking to uh, uh, some kind of a electric pulse and that would pull the make that would pull the electric send juice to the electromagnet that in terms would pull down on the jaw of the puppet I had made that was spring-loaded so it would look like it was mimicking talking and um, yeah, I built the first one at the University Art Museum in Berkeley and it was really successful I had a lot of sh and 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 it was a nice, I was very lucky because when I graduated, I was worried that I would be this kind of charlatan. I wasn't really an artist. And so I had about five shows lined up right out of graduate school based upon that sculpture and concept. And so it was, it, I was lucky because it kicked me out into the world. And then I went to, and then at the same time, I went back to Berkeley and I taught in the art department one year or one class, I can't remember, something like that. And then I was offered this position. A friend of mine, Alex Persotsky, who was a filmmaker and a person I had worked with, he had gotten this job in the Ethnic Studies Department helping a woman, a local producer named Lonnie Ding, Asian-American woman. And Lonnie was teaching this class in Ethnic Studies, and it was a video class that dealt with the scholarship of Ethnic Studies at Berkeley, which at the time was race, class, and gender. It was, at the time, probably the most radical department in the country in that regard. And just dumb luck, I, uh, Alex for some reason got another job and couldn't take the job with Lonnie and so he offered it to me. I drove to San Francisco, met Lonnie, she liked me, and we ended up having a working relationship for five years. I counted as probably some of the, some of the most, um, here, well my dog's barking, I'll let him in. I counted as some of the most, um, it's where I learned learned how to teach. It was some of the best teaching I've done. It was, I met a lot of people. Um, I learned a lot about the, the study of, at the time, race, class, and gender, so, of, in ethnic studies, so I got kind of an education. You taught them how to tell their own stories. Well, basically, it was Lonnie's class, and I was the technical assistant, and what it, what basically we, the students would come to us with content like, oh, I want to make a video about interracial dating. I want to make a video about being uh, mixed blood. I want to do something about um, being a gay Latina woman. And, and so we would say, okay, what's your story? They always had great content and we would just help them make a video. And my job was, here's how the camera works, here's how you edit it. And over a period of time, students, I would see the students' works, so I'd give them feedback and, you know, you just kind of, we all learned together and, and uh, you know, I taught them video. They taught me about issues in their uh, communities. So um, it was good. It was a good, good relationship. I did it for a long time. I did five years with Lonnie.
So you applied it for a job at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, and that was with the Department of the Kinetic Image? Or? No, no. That was with the Design Department. And um, there again, it's just that this is just total dumb luck at the time. I was... at The way you look for at the time, or in some ways you still do, the way you look for a college teaching job, you would join the... CAA, College Art Association, and they would print this booklet and you'd look, you would become a member, you'd get the booklet and you'd see all the job listings for the United States or Europe or Canada. And so like, oh, video art at Oklahoma State, uh, sculpture at, um, you know, University of Washington. So you look at all these and see what you may be able to qualify for. So I uh, saw this job at um, Virginia Commonwealth University. And I had been applying for jobs for about two years. It took that long to sort of get your act together, get your resume tight, get your letters right. And I remember reading this uh, job application for VCU, <laughs> just like it was in the design department and they had all these requirements, got to do this, got to do that, got to, because at the time I think the philosophy was like, we're going to hire somebody, but we want them to be able to do everything. You know, like you got to teach video, you got to teach chemistry, you got to speak five languages, you got to do this. They wanted everything. Oh, you know, it'd be great if you were a carpenter too. So I remember reading this stuff in my apartment in Berkeley and going, God, this is a ridiculous application. There's no way anybody can do all this. I said, I might as well apply because it's, I knew it was kind of nonsense. And I applied thinking I'd never get hear back from these guys. And sure enough, they called me back. And then they said, hey, we want you to, uh, I don't know how it went. I think I talked to them once and then they asked me to come for an interview. So I, um, the interview was very funny. I remember running into one of my students who was also interviewing for, she was a PhD in, I think, anthropology, and she was interviewing. And I remember running into her in, in Telegraph Avenue, and she said, make sure you, you know, sleep and get, drink plenty of orange juice or something like that. And But the best kind of interview advice I ever got was from my chair at the time, Terry Wilson, who was the chair of Native American Studies. And um, Terry um, was, was saying, oh, this is great. You know, you get an interview. And his advice to me was, um, be yourself, be enthusiastic, and don't get drunk with them. <laughs> and I think I still give that advice to other people. So at the time, my friends, Kevin and Carrie, drove me to the Oakland airport. I was getting on the airplane to fly to Virginia in my, um, and it was really cute. Carrie goes, bought me a book right at the airport, right off one of those like shops in the airport. And she goes, I heard this book is pretty good. You should, it's something to read on the airplane. I said, okay. It was Jurassic Park. And I remember the plane took off and I started reading and it was the perfect accompaniment to an interview, college interview, because there was enough sort of fun and excitement in reading the book that it kept me distracted at night because it was in the old days, the interviews were like three days. And so you had to meet everybody on the faculty. You had to meet students, you had to make a presentation, blah, blah. It was very thorough. And uh, at the end of the thing, it was clear that they were interested in me and uh, they so much of... They had so much that offered me the job. John DeMeo was my, was my chair and uh, designer. Then you know, I went back home and uh, sure enough, they offered me the job. And then uh, a couple of months later, I packed my bags and drove to Virginia. And, and it's, you know, one of those things where I had no idea how hard it would be to relocate across the country. I was completely clueless to that. It was very naive. And, and in a way, I'm glad I was naive because it was hard. It was. You know, Virgi Richmond, Virginia was very conservative at the time. And I was like, what the hell? But as it turns out, it was a really good, it's always been a really good art school. And um, my dean, Dean DePillars, the first African-American dean in the South. And, and he somehow put together this collection of artists from the Midwest, a lot of people from Chicago, New York. Um, it was a good art school. And it's always been a good art school. So and, and we, um, and I started in the design department and I taught for... 10 years in the design department. And then the dean at the time, Dean Toskin, decided to split up our department because we were really huge. And we made up design, what we at the time was illustration and then media arts, video animation sound. And he divided us up because we were getting too big and we also weren't always getting along. We fought a lot. And, um, and uh, then we made, he, they formed what was called the Kinetic Imaging Department. And I became the first chair 
much to my chagrin. I didn't want to be an administrator, but I did it. And I did that for 10 years, or no, seven years, and then went back to teaching. And, um, and you know, here I've been here 24, you know, it's like I came here 24 years ago thinking I would always go back. And here I am sitting, doing this interview in the house that I bought and I've lived here ever since. So I've been very lucky. Um, it's good school, and I've and actually I've been extraordinarily uh, blessed to have this position and stuff. Um, I had always been doing video, and in, in, in I was hired really to teach here to teach video art or teach you know yeah video art, and that's the world that I sort of navigated in was making videos single what they call single channel videos and then or installations and then putting them in galleries or video or film festivals that sort of thing and then um but i've also always been interested in built making things with light and um this sort of began really when i was living in when i was teaching in brazil i i got a fulbright scholarship and taught at the university of sao paulo uspi in brazil sao paulo brazil and i started building these light sculptures with a low voltage light and uh, and based upon really darkness and light and um, and i i it, it's something i made made and then i stopped doing it for some unknown reason really silly and then years later Fast forward 20 some years later, 30 years later in Virginia, and I started playing with lights again. And how, I, I don't know how, I, I don't know, I was always fascinated with miniature lights and with like blinking lights. And I took apart a lantern once trying to figure out how it blinked, like one of these things you buy that if you turn the switch one way, it the, the red light on top blinks, you turn it the other way, it's a flashlight. And um, so anyway, I started playing with these things and I had some old slides that I was working with. And then um, then the next jump is, is kind of mysterious. I was doing something and I noticed that they were creating these shadows. And I noticed that, you know, the shadows are more interesting than the slides I'm putting in front of them because the shadows are mysterious and depending on how the bulb blinks, certain things appear and then disappear so you're not sure what you're seeing. So it, it, it almost like it animates the object. So my process was just a matter of playing. So I would put up these light bulbs and I figured out how to wire them so I knew a little bit about I ran them in series, so if one light went out, the other could work. I used uh, alligator clips to do it, and then I, as it turns out, I wrapped the whole thing in like nine pound tracing paper, and then it creates this whole shot. It all of a sudden it made the shadow world, and um, and from that, that's the work that I've been doing now, and I. That work I've showed in it's the most recent work I showed that at um, University of I showed it in Florida at, at Central Florida University in Orlando. I showed it in a, at a, a light festival in Richmond called Inlight. We won the People's Choice Award. It was very popular. We um, People are fascinated by it because it creates this sort of narrative, this kind of shadowy narrative that's about... It's about infrastructure. It's about um, seeing things that are there and then not there. It's about the urban landscape. And if you want to know the truth, you look out my new giant picture window here, you see the city? Yeah. I look at that every day. And subconsciously, that's where all the ideas come from. Like tonight, you'll see all these buildings lit up and it's those lights that actually are the thing that inspire the art. So in a sense, what I'm making is a landscape, but it's a moving landscape with shadows and lights and then um, and, and sounds. I built these like light boxes. They're like giant, like a giant magic lantern that is a, like if you look up the magic Google of magic lantern, you'll see it. But I'm making these sort of moving landscapes. And um, so it's funny, I'm not um, really making videos it, or if I am interested in video, I'm interested in more sculptural elements like like the screens. I'm interested in the screens in the iPhone or the phones because they're really paper thin. So as objects, I think they're kind of interesting and they'll also, 
you can play video on them. So I'm interested in that kind of stuff. So it's, it's funny, earlier in the interview, I talked about being a, a, a glassblower. So in glassblowing, it's about, it's also about light and it's about glasses transparent and, and that. And it's funny, in a funny way, I've come back to narrative, but narrative through and I've always been interested in narrative, but now I'm tying the narrative through light and through shadow and through these animated surfaces. And, um, and yeah, that's what I'm doing now. I want to, apropos of narrative, um, I wanted to talk to you about um, back in your days when you worked for the education department at UC Berkeley, you were asked to do a video that yelled at students, sort of the administration wanted students to pay back their um, loan money. And this is, of course, an ongoing problem in the history of American education, is students getting loans and not paying them back. And of course, over time, we have a bunch of students with major loan, uh, loan debt problems. Now, you were asked to make a, a video uh, to getting students to pay back their um, loans. I wonder if you'd uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well. That was really, um, when I was uh, kind of towards the end of my time at Berkeley, um, I was working at the television office, so I got assigned an assignment to, yeah, there's a problem with people defaulting on loans, so how do you make, there was actually, a, I think the way it worked, and I, I might be wrong about this now, but I'm trying to remember it. There was a requirement that we had to tell students, you're going to get this loan, but you got to pay it back. Well, the normal way would be sort of this boring thing, like you better pay it back or, you know, I don't know, you go to jail or whatever, something bad will happen to you. And they assigned me to it. And actually, me and another friend, Mark Williams, who's a writer now in L.A., we came up with this idea. It's a loan, not a grant. It was like a slideshow. And we put, it was just ridiculous. And it starts out in this um, lab and these two students are talking about getting their student loan. And then they talk about defaulting on it and they're gonna take a trip in Puerto Vallarta. Anyway, it was completely, and then the professor loses it and like, actually it's pretty violent. And, um, but anyway, it was, it was pretty funny too. And, and we kind of did it, it was really meant to be tongue in cheekish, but they were really nervous about it, I think. I think it was pretty well received because it was just kind of ridiculous. Well, they ended up, I just put it in context, they ended up showing it to literally thousands of students who were getting loans and were required to watch it. And so then they ended up laughing their way through the entire video. Most, most of them did, but there were some students who took offense to it, that they uh -huh. thought that this isn't the way a professor should act. And So you saw both sides of it. And, my, um, and we had to actually pass out like a... A, uh, a like a, an evaluation and I had to show it to my boss because he was thinking we would get in he was very nervous and it was a little controversial and I don't think they ever trusted me after that but it was fun and um, and it was uh, you know and it was just sort of what it was it was just one of those things that you did that was and then on that I know you wanted me to talk about this other video I made called garbage disposal and this was just it was just a fun video I made. I think the funnest thing about it, it was something that I made at home and it had to do with this, something had happened and this family starts putting things down the garbage disposal and then they start putting everything down the garbage disposal. So it's just kind of this funny narrative, but probably the sweetest thing about it, to be honest with you, is that it was something I made with my mother and my father while I was in graduate school. And um, maybe the real importance of that was, it was a time, it was a, uh, that, my time in graduate school was important for me because, as it can be for a lot of people, because it was forming my foundation for starting to consider myself a serious artist or taking art seriously. But it was also like um, a time I had chose to live at home at that time to save some money. And as it turns out, my father got sick with cancer and um, I ended up living at home while I was at graduate school to help take care of him. So it, 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 there's a serious side to this, to the thing too. So I can look at that video and go like, oh, that's, it's funny and narrative. But for me, what it was really, I, I think now as an adult and with life experience and going through the things one does in, in his or her life, it, it was, it was important because it was, it was like the last thing I think I ever did with my mother and father as a, as a, they helped their son in graduate school. And I think maybe six months after that, my father got 
seriously ill and sick and uh, he passed away like a year later and um, and that was a big deal for me and, and it was also a, a time you know as you become an adult how do you become an adult how do you learn about serious stuff in your life I was going to graduate school and that can be a transitional period in some one uh, person's life but also my father was dying and I chose to live at home and help take care of him while he was dying so my experience really in graduate school like I would wake up in the morning and my dad would I would take my dad to chemo <laughs> and drop him off and then take him home. And then I would drive to graduate school and talk about art. Then I'd come home and help my mother with my father, feed him. And then I remember, God, it was, at times it was just dreadful. But it was, you know, it's life. But it's like he would be sitting there coughing and I'd know that it's like I knew I was listening to him dying in a sense. But I wouldn't regret any of that time not to get heavy or more or, or uh, you know or with it but because I, I saw um, I, I learned about the passing of, of a person that happened to be my parent I saw how my two parents related to each other and they were married for 40 or 50 years I think and how they said goodbye to each other in that year that my dad was sick and how my mother took care of him I learned a lot about um, my responsibility as a son in the family for taking care of them. So it was, it's not an experience that I would want to go through on a daily basis, but this may not have been the answer you wanted, but yeah, it was a funny video about narrative, but for me, that's what it's really about. So it's sort of a different story. So that's it. Mike Pence, just maybe the greatest kiss-ass in American political history. Now and then there is an article or a broadcast that slips through the cracks, one that should be seen and heard by everyone. Such is the case of Jane Meyer's October 23rd New Yorker piece entitled The Danger of President Pence. This is an outstanding piece of instructive journalism where we learn about Vice President Mike Pence, a man who should be nominated as the biggest and most successful kiss-ass in American history. Meyer notes that Pence has dutifully stood by the president, mustering a devotional gaze rarely seen since the days of Nancy Reagan, and has been lucky in being compared with relative favor to the crazed and gaff-prone tweeter-in-chief he works for. Pence has displayed a talent for knowing when to flatter his boss, a skill that works for him. During the campaign, when he had not quite yet guaranteed his nomination, he recognized that Trump was susceptible to flattery. And after a golf game at Trump's club in New Jersey, he told the media that Trump beat me like a drum. And at Trump's first full cabinet meeting, Pence said, This is the greatest privilege of my life, to serve as vice president to a president who's keeping his word to the American people. Mark Knoller, who had covered the White House for CBS since Gerald Ford, said of Pence, He's the most publicly deferential to his president of any VP I can remember. They are oddly matched. As Steve Bannon joked, Pence joins Trump in an odd pair from 50s casting, with Trump as Dean Martin, the bad boy from the Rat Pack, Ain't that a kick in the head? and Pence as the dad on Leave it to Beaver. Well, it's sort of traditional, I guess. Uh, you know, they say a woman's place is in the home. Pence's extraordinary loyalty to President Trump has earned the attention of Joel K. Goldstein, a historian and expert on vice presidents who calls Big Mike the sycophant-in-chief. As one of the original transition team said of our Veep, Pence left his backbone in Indiana, if he ever had one. How did Mike Pence get this close to the presidency after an ambitious but relatively non-productive career, one filled with a hit-and-miss record in the public sphere? Pence is indeed a truly right-wing conservative who has spent most of his life as a representative of extreme Christian right positions. As Meyer says, Pence is the inside man of the conservative money machine. Or to hear Kellyanne Conway presented, Mike Pence is a full-spectrum conservative on social, moral, economic, and defense issues. What this means is that Pence argues for less government interference in business, but pushes for policies that intrude into people's personal lives. Pence spouts the usual right-wing blather about getting government off people's backs, but apparently wants to allow it into the bedroom where he really thinks it should be. 
Back in the early 1990s, Mike began working for an up-and-coming think tank, the Indiana Family Institute, which worked for the criminalization of abortion against equal rights for homosexuals and to limit birth control for unmarried people. As governor of Indiana in 2015, Pence signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a bill essentially legalizing discrimination against homosexuals by businesses in the state. It proved to be very unpopular and led to a large number of boycotts against Indiana, effectively threatening to end Pence's political career. If it hadn't been for Trump's decision to nominate him for VP, Pence might be a name in next year's Trivial Pursuit. But sadly, that didn't happen. And the man who says, I am a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order, is now a heartbeat away from the scariest president in U.S. history. In policy terms, Pence believes global warming is a myth, has worked consistently against all environmental regulations, and is vehemently anti-abortion and anti-gay. He's even against contraception outside marriage. As Democratic candidate Vi Simpson said, he's on a mission to reverse women's economic and political advances. Pence goes the extra mile to support corporations who exploit the public like when he supported Big Tobacco's talking points back in 2000. Smoking doesn't kill. In fact, two of every three smokers don't die from a smoking-related illness. A greater scourge than cigarettes, Pence argued back then, was big government, disguised as do-gooder, healthcare rhetoric. To follow Pence's logic, why benefit from Medicare when you can smoke yourself to death? Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island says, if Pence ever became president, it would be a government run by the Koch brothers. He's been their tool for years. I'm concerned he'd be a president the Kochs would own. Back in G.W. Bush's administration, Pence took positions to the right of the decider and in 2012 threatened to shut down the federal government unless it defunded Planned Parenthood. He backs personhood legislation that bans abortion under all circumstances, including rape and incest. And as governor in Indiana, he signed a bill banning women from aborting a physically deformed fetus and required fetal burial or cremation. And Big Mike led the campaign against cap-and-trade environmental legislation in 2011. It's hard to get to the right of Mike Pence. Pence's gift, according to Meyer and others, is... He can present even extreme positions in genial, non-threatening terms. Sort of the guy who makes you take the cod liver oil without gagging too much. People started to see an authentic, affable conservative who was not perpetually in a bad mood about it. Policies that were cruel to most citizens and meant to buttress billionaires and the Koch brothers are presented in a friendly way. The policies are cruel, but the delivery is warm. Pence essentially spouts honey-covered hostility. It's hard to get between an adoring Mike Pence and crazy Donald Trump these days. Mike is willing to do what it takes to stay on Trump's good side and get as many anti-regulatory, women's rights bashing, voting rights limiting, and pro-corporate laws as possible. Trump campaigned as a populist, but is governing like a plutocrat. So it seems to be Pence's, and by extension, the Koch brothers' policy positions that we are getting. Crime, Stories from a South African Childhood by Trevor Noah. This is a short review. Sometimes a book educates you. Sometimes a book makes you laugh. Sometimes it makes you think. Sometimes you just plain like a book. All of this is true for me of Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, Stories from a South African Childhood. It came out in November 2016, but I just got around to reading it. It was a great choice because Noah has written a superb book. In September 2015, Trevor Noah replaced legendary Jon Stewart as the host of The Daily Show on Comedy Central. What a challenge. Stewart had been the host since 1999. The Daily Show had won 22 Emmys, and Jon Stewart was a beloved figure in American political comedy. Noah had become a recurring contributor on the show in 2014, but the world was stunned when he actually became host less than a year later. Stewart backed him and told him to make the show his own. Noah calls Stewart the Jewish Yoda, and indeed, 
made the show his own. He has been signed to continuous host through 2022. Still, my interest in his book has little to do with The Daily Show. It has to do with the education I received by reading this fascinating combination of history, travelogue, and character study. As the son of a Zosa mother and a Swiss-German father, Noah's birth was a crime under apartheid, hence the title. A crime where his parents could each be subject to jail sentences of five years each. He spent much of his childhood being hidden. The government went to insane lengths to try to enforce these laws. There were whole police squads whose only job was to go around peeking through the windows. And if an interracial couple got caught, God help them. Trevor's mom, Patricia, is a Zosa woman. Zosa is the language of cliques made famous in this country by folk singer Miriam Makiba back in the 1960s. But still fairly obscure. Noah himself speaks Zosa, Zulu, Soto, Swana, Zango, Afrikaans, English, and some German. Even at this, he doesn't speak all the official languages of South Africa. There are 11. The government used language to divide people as they were educated in their separate tongues. Because of this, we'd fall into the trap the government had set for us and fight amongst ourselves, believing we were different. Still, Noah's polyglot abilities proved assets in numerous situations a tool that served me my whole life. He described situations where he was followed by Zulu kids thinking he was white and could be taken down. But since he knew what they were saying, he saved himself by speaking colloquial Zulu right back at them. Yo guys, why don't we just mug someone together? I'm ready, let's do it. Noah tells us he grew up in a world ruled by women, in a superstitious world where he was told by his grandmother to pray in English, to white Jesus, because it was more likely the prayers would be answered. The most remarkable woman in the entire group of very impressive women is his mother, Patricia Nambu Yiselo Noah, a Zosa woman who worked her way into secretarial school and a better job. Noah tells us that he had a Tom and Jerry relationship with his mother. My relationship with my mom was like the relationship between a cop and a criminal in the movies. The relentless detective and the devious mastermind she's determined to catch. But Patricia Noah consistently refuses to be typecast and survives and perseveres because she's nobody's patsy, nobody's slave. She was raised in a hut, one of 14 children, all her cousins, but managed to pass on a sense of justice and hope to her son. Learn from your past and be better because of your past, but don't cry about your past. Life is full of pain. Let the pain sharpen you, but don't hold on to it. Don't be bitter. And she never was, Noah tells us. This in spite of domestic abuse and later in spite of being shot twice by her husband, Trevor's stepfather. The second bullet went through her head, but she miraculously survived with all her faculties. Patricia Noah is the most remarkable woman amongst the many remarkable people in this book. I have always liked books that transport, that take me to different eras and times, history, to different worlds and cultures, science fiction, and to different cultures, anthropology and travel. Noah's book takes us to a different place, South Africa, to a strange and brutal culture, apartheid, but does it through the eyes of people who have transcended the negativity of the experience, Trevor Noah and his incredible mother, Patricia. Born a Crime is a gem. Read it, treasure it, pass it on. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. I want to thank Bob Kapitoff for being today's artist. And I want to thank our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown, who makes it all sound better. And thanks to our voiceover talents, Christine Samus, and all-around jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity. Foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.
Mike Pence, Mike Pence, Pen, Mike, Mike, Pen, 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 Pen,